This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. Last week in the class period, right before Dr. Dunham spoke in chapel, I uh, made a friendly wager with my class. I uh, wagered them a cup of coffee that he would speak from the Old Testament. And I was not disappointed, though I still haven't received that actual cup of coffee yet. Decaf, lots of cream and sugar would be great. Um, I don't know when Dr. Miller is speaking here, but uh, I think that's coming up soon. And uh, I won't be surprised if he speaks from the New Testament. We kind of expect an Old Testament prof to speak from the Old Testament and a New Testament prof to speak from the New. But where does that leave a church history prof? <laughs> Maybe in the book of Acts, um, something like that. Well, that's, I'm not going to speak from Acts this morning. I'm going to do something rather unusual. This morning, I'm actually going to deliver a sermon for the history books. Uh, no, really, the text of the sermon will be written about in books in years to come because scholars have actually been writing about it for almost 300 years now. Um, what I'm going to do is I want to provide a short introduction to a sermon delivered by a man who's been called the greatest philosopher theologian in colonial America. I'm speaking, of course, of Jonathan Edwards, who lived between 1703 and 58. And what I want to do is I want to present his, ser- his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. A little different. What I want to do is provide an introduction to the sermon, then read portions of the sermon, and then draw some concluding thoughts about it. So I'd like to begin by providing some clarifications and some historical context. Uh, First, some clarifications about his sermon. Some wrongly assume that Jonathan Edwards was a stern and heartless preacher who just delighted in describing people suffering in hell, that he was heartless and and kind of enjoyed describing people in hell. But I think nothing could be further from the truth. By most accounts, Edwards was a kind and sensitive pastor, and I think he was really concerned about keeping people out of hell. Edwards was also a careful theologian who labored to express the realities of God's wrath in ways that would help people come to know Christ as their Savior in this life rather than as their judge in the next. Although sinners in the hands of an angry God can rightly be be described as a hell and brimstone kind of sermon, I'd argue that it's not primarily a hell and and brimstone kind of sermon. Um, Edwards certainly talks about hell quite a bit, but he does so in order to point out the condition of fallen man. And it's really a sermon that's calling for repentance. Edwards' sermon isn't a typical Puritan Jeremiah or a kind of a lament over the condition of society. That's not what he's following, though he's living in that time frame when sermons like that have been popular. Instead, Edwards' sermon is, I think, rightly called a hand sermon. That is, it's a sermon that depicts God's creatures as living within the hands of their creator. It's a sermon that describes lost man's fearful condition before God. Contrary to popular depictions, the sermon did not actually launch the Great Awakening, which had begun some six or seven years earlier. Churches throughout the areas now known as Massachusetts and Connecticut had been experiencing revival, awakening, whatever one wants to call it, for a number of months and even years, sometimes seeing dozens of people come to Christ in a single week. A nearby church, near to where Edwards would preach the sermon, had seen 95 people added to the church in a single Sunday just recently. But, interestingly enough, the place where Edwards would preach this sermon had not yet been touched by awakening. In fact, it was kind of known for its resistance to the awakening. And this sermon would be pivotal in bringing awakening to that community, the community of Enfield. Now, if you've read anything about Jonathan Edwards, you've likely come across the old canard that 
Jonathan Edwards delivered sermons in the hands of an angry God by holding his sermon manuscript up in front of his face and reading in a very monotone voice. Truth is that Jonathan Edwards probably did not read his manuscript verbatim when he delivered the sermon to such great effect. He frequently departed from his sermon manuscripts and spoke extemporaneously, even though he had a full manuscript in front of him. And as he did this, um, as he preached the sermon, it was just a short time before he transitioned to using outlines instead of manuscripts. And so I think by this point in his ministry, he really was not very dependent on the manuscript, frequently departed from it, and uh, likely did that in the case of this uh, sermon. Now, the immediate context of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, it was preached in 1741. This is some 35 years before um, the colonists <laughs> declared their independence from Britain and began the American Revolution in earnest. So Edwards and his listeners consider themselves to be British subjects living in New England um, under the authority of the king, ultimately. And this was still very early. Indian tribes are living in parts of New England. In fact, Indian raids were a constant concern along the western edge of New England and small villages especially. Edwards' own family had been touched by these raids. He had lost extended family members and no doubt some of his listeners had as well. More immediately, it was a warm summer night. It was actually a Wednesday night, not a Sunday night. It was a warm summer night in July of 1741, no air conditioning. Jonathan Edwards mounted the wooden steps leading up to the pulpit of the Congregational Church in Enfield, Connecticut. He was actually a guest speaker that week. Uh, some say that um, he was called on at the last minute to re-deliver the sermon, um, that there was some mix-up and the speaker didn't show up, whatever. Uh, that's kind of debated. Anyway, he delivered this sermon, and as was his custom when speaking abroad, he was actually re-preaching a sermon he had preached a few weeks earlier up in his own church in Northampton with apparently non or unremarkable effects. Just kind of a side note, sermon recycling has a long and rather <laughs> respectable history, so uh, Edwards did it. You know, Anyone can do it. The biblical, the biblical text on which Jonathan Edwards built his famous sermon was a verse found in Deuteronomy chapter 32 don't need to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 32, 35, God declares, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. Then having read this verse, Edwards proceeded to follow a typical Puritan-style outline in which one first discusses the text, then gives a doctrinal exposition before concluding with an application of the text and the doctrine to the lives of his listeners. It's basically the the model that Edwards follows here, text, doctrine, and then application. So I'm going to read significant parts of Edwards's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I'll try to indicate some of the structure of his outline as we go. And this is going to be a slightly abridged and uh, somewhat paraphrased. I'm getting rid of some of the 18th century English that's a little rough. Um, so I've slightly modified it, but this is essentially what Edwards preached in Enfield, Connecticut, 1741. Their foot shall slip in due time, Deuteronomy 32:35. In this verse, the violent anger of God is threatened upon the wicked and unbelieving Israelites, who were God's chosen people living under the benefits of his grace, but who, despite all God's wonderful works toward them, were without sense and had no understanding in them. Though cultivated by the blessings of heaven, they brought forth only bitter and poisonous fruit. The verse I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slip in due time, relates to the punishment and destruction of these wicked Israelites. It implies the following things. They were always exposed to destruction, just as someone who stands or walks in slippery places is always in danger of falling. It also implies that they were always exposed to sudden, 
unexpected destruction, just as he who walks in slippery places is always liable to fall. He cannot foresee from one moment to the next whether he will stand or fall. When he does fall, it is sudden and without warning. The only reason they have not fallen already is that God's appointed time has not yet come. The text says that when their appointed time does come, their foot shall slip. Then, by their own weight, they will be left to fall. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but he will let them go, and at that very instant he does, they will fall into destruction. From these words, I insist on this. Nothing keeps wicked people out of hell for a single moment except the mere pleasure of God. This is Edwards' doctoral thesis. Um, his, he's shifting to the doctoral section of his sermon. Nothing keeps wicked people out of hell for a single moment except the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, which is not hindered or restrained by anything. It is only the sovereign will of God that preserves the life of a wicked person. Nothing else preserves the wicked for one moment except God's mere will. The truth of this observation may be seen in the following thoughts. God does not lack the power to throw wicked people into hell at any moment. The hands of man are weak when God rises up against him. The strongest of men are defenseless against God, and no one can be rescued from his hand. God is not only able to throw people into hell, but he is able to do it easily. Nothing can defend you from his power. Even though wicked people join together in great numbers against him, they are easily broken into pieces. They are like great piles of weightless chaff in a tornado, or large heaps of dry stubble in the path of devouring flames. We find it easy to step on and crush a worm crawling on the ground. It's just as easy for God to cast his enemies into hell whenever he pleases. The wicked deserve to be thrown into hell. God is not unjust in using his power to destroy them. No, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an unending punishment for their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that bears grapes like Sodom, cut it down, why does it use up the ground? The sword of divine justice waves over their heads at every moment, and nothing but God's mercy and mere will holds it from falling on them. Wicked people are already under sentence of condemnation to hell. Not only do they justly deserve to be thrown into hell, but the sentence of God's eternal and unchangeable standard of righteousness, his law, which he has placed between himself and mankind, stands against them so that they are already hanging over hell. John 3.18 says, He who does not believe is condemned already. This means that every unconverted person rightfully belongs in hell. Wicked and unbelieving persons are even now the objects of the very same anger and wrath of God that are revealed in the torments of hell. The reason they are not thrown down into hell now is not that the sovereign God is not angry with them, or as he is with the many miserable people who are already tormented in hell and bearing his fierce wrath. No, God is much angrier with unbelievers who are still here on earth, and very likely with many who are now in this congregation than he is with many of those now in the flames of hell. So the reason why God has not loosed his hand and cut them off is not that he is unaware of their wickedness or tolerates it. God is not like them, though they imagine him to be. The wrath of God is burning against them. Their damnation is not sleeping. The pit is prepared. The fire is already made. The furnace is hot and ready to receive them. The flames even now rage and glow. The shiny sword is sharpened and held over them. The pit has opened its mouth under them. Within the souls of wicked people, hellish desires reign. Were it not for God's restraint, those desires would kindle and flare up into hellfire. In the very nature of carnal men lies the basis for the torments of hell. These corrupt desires controlling and possessing them are the very seeds of hellfire. 
They are active and extremely violent. If it were not for God's restraining hand, they would soon fan out as widely as the corruption and hostility that fill the hearts of the condemned and produce the same kind of torment in them. Sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive by nature. And if God were to leave it unrestrained, nothing else would be needed to make the soul perfectly miserable. The heart is extremely corrupt, and its fury knows no boundaries. Sin is like fire confined by God's restraint, but if let loose, it would set ablaze the whole course of nature. It is no security to wicked people for one moment they are that they are not in any apparent danger of dying soon. It is no security for the natural man that he is now healthy, or that he does not foresee how he might suddenly be taken by some accident. The unseen and unexpected ways that people suddenly leave this world are too numerous to imagine. The unconverted walk over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge, and there are countless places on that bridge that are too weak to bear their weight. These places go unseen. The arrows of death fly unnoticed at high noon. The sharpest eyes cannot see them. God has so many unfathomable ways of taking wicked people out of this world and sending them to hell that he does not need miracles or unnatural causes to do so. His ordinary providence alone is able to destroy the wicked at any moment. All the means by which sinners leave this world are under God's control. All the schemes and efforts of the wicked to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and remain wicked do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears about hell deceives himself that he will escape it. He rests in his own false security, flattering himself with the good things he has done, is now doing, or intends to do. Every man plots how he will escape damnation and flatters himself thinking that his plans are ingenious that his schemes will not fail. He clearly hears that only a few will be saved and that the greater part of humanity who have died before him have gone to hell. But each one imagines that his plans to escape are better than theirs. He has no intention of going to that place of torment. He tells himself that he will carry out his plans with such care that they cannot fail. These foolish people miserably trick only themselves with their own schemes. By putting confidence in their own wisdom and strength, they are only trusting a shadow. Most of those who until now have lived under the same means of grace are now dead and in hell. This is not because they were not as wise or did not plan for their escape as well as those who are alive today. If we could ask them one by one whether when they were alive and heard of hell they ever expected to suffer its misery, they would doubtless say, No, I never intended to come here. I had other plans. I thought I could manage well and my scheme was sound. I intended to carry out all of my plans, but death took me by surprise. I wasn't looking for it at that time or in that way. It came like a thief in the night. Death outsmarted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. All this time I was flattering myself with empty dreams of what I would do later. And just when I was saying to myself, peace and safety, destruction overcame me. God is not bound by any promises to keep natural man out of hell for one moment. He has certainly made no promises of eternal life or of any deliverance from eternal death except those given in the promises to us in Christ. Therefore, regardless of what people have imagined or pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, it's clear that whatever pains one takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, unless he believes in Christ, God is under no obligation to keep him from eternal destruction for one moment. So it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked, and his anger is as great toward them as it is toward those suffering his fierce wrath even now. 
They have done nothing to appease or lessen God's anger, nor is he under any obligation or promise to hold them up for one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell's mouth is open for them. The flames gather and flash around them, longing to take them and swallow them up. The fire trapped inside their own hearts is struggling to break out, and they have no hope of a mediator. Nothing within their reach can give them any security. In short, they have no refuge and nothing to grab hold of. The only thing that preserves them every moment is the mere will and unobliged patience of an incensed God. Edwards now moves to the application of this doctrine to the lives of his hearers. The purpose of this terrifying subject is to wake up the unconverted people in this congregation. What you have heard is true of every one of you who do not believe and trust in Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is spread right beneath you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of God's wrath. There is hell's wide open mouth and you have nothing to stand on or to grab onto. Nothing between you and hell but the air. Only the power and mere pleasure of God holds you up. You are probably unaware of this. You notice that you are being kept out of hell, but you do not see that it is God's hand keeping you out. Instead, you look at other things, such as your good health, the way you take care of yourself, and the things you do to preserve your life. But in fact, these things are nothing. If God withdrew his hand, these things would no more keep you from falling than thin air holds up a person suspended in it. Your own wickedness weighs you down like lead and is dragging you down toward hell with great weight and force. Again, if God would let you go, you would immediately sink, quickly descending and plunging into the bottomless gulf. All of your health and personal care, all of your best schemes, and all of your own righteousness would no better support you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would stop a falling rock. The bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is already set on the string, and justice aims it directly at your heart. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, an angry God, who is not restrained by any promise or obligation that keeps that arrow from being drunk with your blood. This means that all of you whose hearts have never been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who have never been born again and made new creatures, raised from being dead in sin to new light and life, all of you are in the hands of an angry God. Though you may have made many changes in your life or had some religious experiences or practiced religion in your family, your private life, or your church, it is only God's mere pleasure that keeps you from being swallowed up in everlasting destruction this very moment. However unconvinced you are now about the truth of what you are hearing, when you die, you will be fully convinced of it. Others who were in your position now see that these things are true. For most of them, destruction came suddenly when they least expected it. They were saying peace and safety, but now they see that the things they trusted to give them peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. God is holding you over the pit of hell as someone holds a spider or some repulsive insect over a fire, and he abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire, and he sees you as worthy of nothing else but to be thrown into that fire. O sinner, think seriously about the fearful danger you are in. Yet you have no interest in a mediator and nothing to grab hold of to save yourself, nothing to fend off the flames of wrath, nothing in yourself, nothing you have ever done, nothing you can do to persuade God to spare you for one moment. For now, God stands ready to have pity on you. This is the day of mercy. Now you may cry with the hope of obtaining mercy. But once the day of mercy is past, your most serious and desperate cries for mercy will be in vain. You will be forever lost and God will throw you away, no longer giving thought to your welfare. God will have no other use for you except to make you suffer misery. 
You shall exist for no other purpose. You will be objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. And there will be no other use for those objects but to be filled full of God's wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for even one moment, but you will suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this intense and horrible misery. When you look ahead, you will see a long forever, an unlimited length of time before you. This will swallow up all of your thoughts. It will amaze your soul, and you will be in absolute despair of ever being delivered, of its ever coming to an end, or of receiving any reduction of torment or any rest at all. You will know for sure that you must wear out many long ages, millions and millions of ages, in struggling and fighting against this merciless vengeance. And when you have struggled and fought through all these many ages, you will realize that hardly a second has gone by and eternity still remains. Your punishment will be unending. Oh, who can express the horrible state of a soul in that condition? All that we can possibly say about it is only a very feeble and faint image of what it will be like. It is inexpressible and inconceivable for who knows the power of God's anger. How dreadful is the state of those who are in danger of this great wrath and misery every hour of every day. Yet this is the dark and gloomy condition of every soul who has not been born again, however moral and strict, serious and religious he or she may be. Oh, that you would consider this whether you are young or old. There's reason to think that many in this congregation now listening to this message will actually suffer this very misery for all eternity. We do not know who they are or where they are seated or what they may now be thinking. Could be that they are now at ease and remain undisturbed by hearing all these things, assuring themselves that they are not the ones spoken of and promising themselves that they will escape. If we knew that there was even one person in this whole congregation who would suffer such misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. Even more if we knew who that person was, how horrifying it would be to see that person in such a state. But I tell you, it is likely that not just one, but many will remember this sermon while they are in hell. It would be surprising if some who are now present were not in hell in a very short while, even before this year is over. Those of you who live and stay out of hell longer than others will surely be there before long. Your damnation is not sleeping. It will come swiftly and most likely very suddenly upon many of you. But here you are in the land of the living, in the house of God, and you have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would those poor damned hopeless souls not give for the opportunity you now have? Now you have an extraordinary opportunity. This day Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to four sinners. Many are flocking to him and pressing into his kingdom. They are coming daily from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Many, until very recently, were in the same miserable condition that you were in, and they are now happy. Their hearts filled with love for him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. They are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How terrible it would be to be left behind in such a day, to see others feasting while you are grieving and perishing. How awful it would be to see so many people rejoicing and singing with joy from their hearts while you can do nothing but mourn and feel sorrow in your heart and cry because your spirit is so afflicted. <clears throat> How can you rest for one moment if you are now in that condition? Therefore, let everyone who is without Christ now wake up and flee from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now without a doubt hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone flee from Sodom, escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And so Edwards ended his sermon. Actually, he may not have gotten there, uh, as we'll see.
Stephen Williams, Edwards' cousin and a fellow pastor at a nearby church, was present to hear that sermon originally delivered. <clears throat> Here's how he described its effects in his diary. We went over to Enfield where we met dear Mr. Edwards of Northampton who preached a most awakening sermon from these words, Deuteronomy 32:35. And before the sermon was done, there was great moaning and crying uh, throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ, etc. So that the minister was obliged to desist. The creaks, uh, shrieks, and cries were piercing and amazing. After some time of waiting, the congregation were still, so that a prayer was made by Mr. Wheelock, and after that we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people, some in one place and some in another. <clears throat> and amazing and astonishing, the power of God was seen, and several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night. And oh, the cheerfulness and pleasantness of their circumstances that received comfort. Oh, that God would strengthen and confirm. We sung a hymn and prayed and dismissed the assembly. Uh, this diary entry mentions that several souls were hopefully wrought upon that evening. Um, actually, uh, somewhere around 500 people were converted in the immediate wake of the sermon in and around Enfield. Uh, this was not just a, a few people moved um, by a, a, a brief sermon. So some 280 years later, what should our takeaway be from the sermon? A couple of concluding thoughts. First, no sermon is a magic formula. Um, this morning, my summary of Edwards' sermon did not have the effect you were not clinging to your chairs, crying out for salvation. Um, you did not behave like the people in Enfield, and I would have been rather surprised if you had um, as seminary students. Um, simply repeating a, a phrase or a, even a well-crafted sermon does not guarantee that God will work in the same way. Edwards, as I mentioned, preached a sermon a couple of weeks earlier in his own church. And after this remarkable response, he went on and preached the same sermon several other times in other places, but never to quite the same effect. So God's not bound to do something specific any time one preaches a particularly well-crafted sermon. We can't twist God's arm. He's not a genie that we can kind of conjure up by repeating certain words. God is sovereign in dispensing his grace. He moves where and when he wishes. And yet God did choose to use this particular sermon in a very unusual way. God apparently did something quite remarkable in Enfield, Connecticut in July of 1741. God used Edward's vivid description of man's condition to open the eyes of many unbelievers and perhaps to wake up lethargic believers to the reality that human life is short and that we all live our lives within the hands of a sovereign God. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, Edwards was a firm believer in God's sovereignty. He was no closet Arminian. He firmly believed that God would save his elect, and yet he delivered an impassioned plea that people would turn to Christ. His Calvinism did not turn him away from the gospel call. He was calling people to turn while they had the opportunity. Humanly speaking, I think part of the reason for the sermon's success, if we can call it that, was the profound sincerity of the preacher. Edwards really believed that many of the people listening to him were in danger of going to hell. They were in danger of spending eternity under the wrath of God. He really believed what God said about unconverted man's condition. And the people who heard him knew he believed, <coughs> excuse me, knew he believed what he was saying. You know, we should not be afraid to tell people the truth about their condition. Um, Edwards did, and, and as I said, Edwards is Maybe not a perfect mall, he's a fallen human like us, but uh, we should not be afraid to tell people the truth about their condition, about God's wrath, and about the fate of those who persist in rejecting Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. We live in a day when preaching about hell is very much out of fashion. 
Uh, when was the last time you heard a sermon about God's wrath or about hell? Man's awful state um, at this point, the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ. Edwards was not afraid to tell people the truth about their precarious state, about the danger they were in, and we really shouldn't be either. We should be willing to tell people the truth and beg them to turn to Christ. We could do with a lot less Joel Olstein in our day and a bit more Jonathan Edwards. As we reflect on this historical sermon, I think we can thank God for the times of awakening he has sent in the past. And we should ask God to continue to use his word to convert sinners for their good and ultimately for his glory. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, Edwards and the awakening you sent to our own land here some 280 years ago. Lord, we pray that we would be bold in telling people the truth, that we would not uh, shy away from preaching your truth, telling people about uh, both your wrath and your love, your provision in Christ. Pray that you would make us bold, that you would cause us to love people and love you. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.